Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Hey, welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. I'm really stoked for our guest today, Ed Tyson. He is the CEO of Persynergy Consulting and author of the book, From Expert to Executive. He's a former strategy executive and Marine turned executive coach and organizational consultant. Ed, one, thank you for your service. And two, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir, on both accounts. Great to be here. Awesome. Ed, so as a visionary, what is the story that you would like to bring to the world? Well, I basically, uh, through my own interactions with clients, et cetera, been uh, in a cave for a couple of years trying to figure out a better way to do leadership development. You know, for instance, uh, globally, there is a crisis. CEOs around the country, uh, 86% of them, according to a, a recent global survey, say that they don't have the leaders they need to implement the strategy. And what they're referring to, of course, is not that they have a bunch of vacant positions, but rather they've got leaders who are not leading. So the idea that I'm trying to bring to the world is really, why do we lead? What is the purpose of leading? What is the work of leading? And how should we do it? Oh, go ahead. I was cutting you off. I'm sorry. You're you're hitting on a really interesting spot because there was a big conversation this weekend on it. And I was actually making the point that it seems like people get promoted to their level of incompetence, right? You're really good at what you do, but you get promoted like into management or leadership role. And suddenly like no one ever taught you how to do that. Is that one of the reasons why you had that 86% out there? Well, I think the biggest reason is just some fundamental misconnects and really what is leadership? You got ships passing in the night. We talk about it a lot as if everybody knows what we mean when we say that word. The most important thing that I like to do is just strip everything down and almost tell the five second origin story for leadership. So here, here it is, all right? And that is that if you think about the first time you conceived of leadership, it's when you first held in your mind an objective that you could not achieve alone. Mm. And you recognized, I need the cooperation, participation, the willingness of other people. And so you, you leverage this social technology called leadership uh, to get that cooperation, to uh, help a community form around some core ideas and will and desire and built the capability of them to work together to get a job done. And ideally, if you did it right, you build a community of effort that can't just do it once or twice, but is actually sustainable over time. And so the purpose of leading, the why we lead, is to create a willing, capable, and sustainable community of effort. I, I love that that term community of, of effort. I want to back up uh, just a moment here and give you a instance from my my own life. Uh, as a kid, I grew up watching the old version of Star Trek, the old school version of Star Trek with, with William Shatner as Captain Kirk. And I grew up wanting to be a leader like Captain Kirk. I just liked the way that he spoke. I liked the way that he provided. I, di- I didn't have terms for saying it was inspirational at the time, but I just liked the way that he did things. And I also grew up believing 
that leadership, you were born being a leader. And I wonder if you think there are born leaders and if, if there are, if there are other people that can learn to become leaders and how those people, the, the other category can become people more like Captain Kirk, who feels like he was born to be a leader. I, I certainly think that there's some people who uh, come into this world, wrap their hands around a baseball bat for the first time and have an unbelievable feel for the game. Right. And they can just hit no matter how fast the other kids are pitching, they can smash that ball like nobody's business. And they only get better throughout their whole lives. Mm-hmm. There are also people who uh, take those first hundred or 2000 swings with a baseball bat and don't have that feel. And my belief is that uh, if you really understand the purpose for leading, what the work is, and then you build repeatable processes for doing it, processes that I call leadership SOPs, mm-hmm. that you can actually build that feel over time. You can make yourself a more and more competent leader by virtue of repetition. Repetition, by its very nature, practice makes purpose perfect, right? So it builds personal proficiency. Number two, what repetition also does is it creates plays around you. So it creates a playbook, if you, can, if you will, that helps other people collaborate with you. So it's not only helping you when you establish leadership SOPs to engage in the act of leading or in acts of leading, but you also help other people collaborate with you by creating patterns or plays like we would call them if we were on the soccer field or the football field. So it's, it's, it sounds like that to, to do this is to become a good leader. We actually have to learn how to be a good leader before we actually are a leader, right? Can't really learn or you shouldn't be learning on the fly in the job. Is that right? We should all be practicing this beforehand. Well, that's a, that's a great point. And uh, it's not, let me address exactly what you asked first. And then I'll, and then I'll skip to the thing that uh, really jumped in my mind as you said that. So, uh, yes, I think we should be building the expectation up front. Mo- the most important thing we should be doing is letting our technical people, our individual contributors know up front that this every step on this journey, and this is why I, I named my book From Expert to Executive, is every step is a step away from your craft. It's towards uh, you know, away from whatever science you started on and towards the science of people, away from technical puzzles toward people puzzles. And so if you don't know that's what you're doing, every step of your career you take up the ladder, you end up very frustrated and not, just not embracing some of the natural flexing you might need to do to succeed. Yeah. And I, I also think that at this moment in time, first of all, I think that as we see our, our businesses become much more tech-based, uh, we have a, a situation where these SMEs are the ones that really understand it better than anybody else, and they need to be in a leadership role. And I, so that very much dovetails with what you just said uh, a moment ago. But I'd like to actually expand our conversation into the, the political arena right now. At the present moment, we're dealing with some major disruptions to life, uh, both in this country and in the world, when it comes to the, uh, the protests, the riots, when it comes to the fallout of uh, decisions regarding COVID-19. And I wonder what your opinion is. Right now, I, I heard some statistic, some statistic recently that uh, senators and congressmen are at an all-time low. I think the confidence has 11% 
confidence in our elected leaders. How do we get to a place right now where so many people in this country do not have the confidence in our elected leaders and how can we improve this situation? Yeah, very interesting question. And and let me, let me um, tiptoe around it a little bit by saying uh, some very direct statements, but also some, some that, that perhaps are apolitical. If we go with what I was saying earlier, and if you buy with me that the whole reason we lead is to create a community of effort and that the actual work of leading then becomes everything you do to create a community of effort. So for me, that's structuring it, operating or engaging it and perfecting it or continuously improving it. If that is the work that a leader must do, then you ask yourself, is that the work that Congress is doing? Is that the work we see the president and other elected officials doing? Mm -hmm. And so when we see this frustration, I believe it's because on some level, we understand what this leadership game is about. We understand that it's about creating um, this um, global, uh, you know, will, capability, and sustainability. And when you falter on any of those, let alone all of them, you're failing to engage in the work of leading and therefore people will not look upon you as a leader. Mm-hmm. I, I want to dig in that for a second, right? That means that the expectation management is like a huge part of leadership because sometimes you're doing things that aren't visible to people. So to be a good leader, you have to be really good at also managing expectations. Am I, am I on the right track here? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, the first person's uh, expectations that have to be managed are, are your own. But the second thing is, you know, many people have uh, different notions of leadership, which have been formed for them around kind of what their personal experience has been. And so if what they've experienced in the workplace are leaders who are constantly just telling them exactly what to do, Mm-hmm. Um, or doing it themselves and expecting them, the, them to take a smaller role in execution. And, and we expect that of a leader. And then we get a leader who comes in who does not engage in the actual work, who does not tell everybody exactly what to do, uh, who does not take the biggest, most interesting projects for themselves. It can actually create uh, some interesting moments where people believe it's that leader that's not leading, even though I would contest that they're actually uh, closer to what we really mean uh, by leadership. So yes, expectations are, uh, you know, extremely important. So when you say that, what, what comes to mind to me is we're talking about a new form of leadership, a leadership that diverges, especially with the kind of leadership that I experienced in corporate America. I had a lot of very bad jobs in corporate America where I had bosses that I did not uh, appreciate or respect. And the way that they led was is either my way or the highway. And they also um, would not engage. They would tell us to do one thing and then behave entirely differently. And if I understand you correctly, it, it sounds like is you're promoting a different kind of leadership in, in which it's not just do what I say. It's more about promoting uh, the abilities and the talents of your team so they can perform in this community of effort that you're talking about. Would that be accurate? Well, uh, let's just think about it this way. Uh, when I talk early, talked earlier about the core work of being 
of a leader being to structure, operate, and perfect the community of effort. My model further breaks down uh, the dimensions of leading under each one of those uh, and break it down really into 28 dimensions. Um, this is a full-time job. And so if you embrace that full-time job, you don't have time for the other, the other stuff. The problem that we get into with a lot of leaders is they, they're, they're operating from a place of fear. They don't mm -hmm. know what the work of leadership is. Mm -hmm. And so they engage in a lot of different things they think are going to add value, which includes occupying the space of others. Look, when your boss leans in, you have two choices, lean out or headbutt, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you, you really need to make sure you've formulated the roles of working correctly so that uh, everyone has a place to add really critical value. And that's really what happens when you thoughtfully design a community of effort or, or as in my language, structure it to make sure that you understand the scope of the community of effort that you're creating and that everyone has a role in de developing or driving toward that scope. I think we lost your volume there for a second, Neil. Right, can you guys hear me? Yeah, that we, we can. All right. Sorry, sorry. Uh, that, that's actually really interesting um, because I've obviously known, unfortunately, I've known quite a few leaders that manage by fear and the lean in. And, you know, one of the things that I learned and I, I used to try and teach some of my own direct reports was uh, it's not just so much about learning how to manage down. We have to learn how to manage up as well. Yeah. Right. Is, is, is that like a, a good tenant of, to be a good leader. It's not just about looking downward, but also looking upward. Well, a, a thousand percent. So I threw around a word that's a pretty common word just a minute ago uh, called scope. And, you know, for me, that word means exactly what the word scope means in the English language, but it's also an acronym that stands for strategy, culture, objectives, purpose, and ecosystem. And what I say is every leader has to actually start with that E to work towards their S for strategy. So if you're looking left or right, right, it's, it, it, we all think about the S for strategy. That's a very sexy, cool term, um, misunderstood by a lot, but it's the things that a, a lot of leaders focus on. But really, you've got to understand the rest of that, starting with your full ecosystem. And what that means is you've got to look up. You've got to look at what's the enterprise scope that the organization is arrayed around. And how do I need to work with my peers, my boss, the, the whole organization? How do we have to be in concert in order to formulate strategies at my level inside my scope that I'm running that makes sense and don't try to cannibalize on the same resources my neighbor organizations are to get things done? And that's where you get a lot of um, tribalism in organizations where you have, you know, uh, sales and marketing at war with operations and I, IT at war with everyone. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, uh, can become very messy very quickly when we don't have scope alignment and mm -hmm. real agreement across the organization, who's doing what and how do we work together in an integrated fashion? Absolutely. And I've experienced, I've, I've consulted with companies where I could see that the department heads were fighting with each other. I want to go back just a moment because the the word you used, I think, or was was headbutting, and um, 
what I, when I think about, when I hear what you're talking about leadership reminds me of some of the parenting books that my wife and I read when we have two young kids and was talking, I think it was Janet Lansbury was talking about a different form of parenting. So I can personally say that I did definitely headbutted with my own parents and I had a lot of friends that headbutted with, with their parents and the, the leadership that she was talking about, it reminds me of this, which is to, um, to not lead as to, to Neil's point from a place of fear, not instilling fear in your children, but instead to lead from a place of confidence where you don't try to scare them into doing something, but instead you act in a way that is confident and by doing so that they tend to follow you better as opposed to being a top being top down. And I think the principles that you're saying really could apply to parenting as a form of leadership as well. And I wondered what your thoughts were. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that, Michael, because I just uh, contributed on a, an interview for an article that was focused really on how can great executives be great parents. And one of the parallels that I made in that interview was, look, these games are very similar, parenting and, and right. being a, a leader. And it's not because children are involved in both. That's, you know, so, so it's not a negative right, analogy right. here. It's that in both cases, we are actually trying to gre- create either uh, communities of effort in the sake of a, a leader or an apparent, a, a single human who is an autonomous human, mm-hmm. who is capable of actually extending past you. Uh, that's what every parent is hoping. And that's what every leader ought to be hoping for, too, is creating a team that's capable of sustaining itself beyond their daily input beyond their strategies that they someday um, actually use the headbutting that does occur. That's positive conflict that creates autonomy over time, whether that's adolescence when you're parenting a child or it's, uh, you know, the uh, conflict laden stage of team development where your team actually begins to take more and more control and more and more ownership of the team. And therefore for a time, Conflict actually increases as you work out the appropriateness of the group's desire to take more responsibility than the leader, uh, him or herself. Sure. That is really interesting because I always feel like people is the biggest challenge these days. But, you know, talking about developing them beyond just their day-to-day role, you know, when I was an executive, I always thought that the best testament to my ability to lead and develop people was they could actually surpass me. They had the potential to actually surpass me in their careers. But I, I get the feeling that actually for a lot of people, that's a scary thing. They actually don't want that to happen. Yeah, I encounter that a lot, uh, people who are afraid. And again, it's because I think that there is a question in their mind as to what is the value that the leader brings. And if you believe that the value a leader brings to the table is not the community of effort, and building the engine. If you believe it's winning the race, mm-hmm. being the one with all the glory behind the steering wheel when you come across the, steering, the finish line, if you believe that's the value you bring as a leader, then you'll always be in competition with your team. Mm-hmm. If, however, you believe it's your job to assemble that engine, to make sure you've got a great pit crew, uh, you know all, all the things that would extend that analogy around the ability to have the capacity to win races and not just one race, but keep winning them season after season. If you believe that's your value, then there's no end to how high everyone else can and really needs to get in the organization. And that's not a threat to the leader. It's, it speaks uh, well of them. 
So when you when you say that, my mind goes to another pop culture reference, which is the Game of Thrones books. And so in the in the series, but especially in the book series, it's always a power struggle, and it goes back to the power struggles that that um, medieval king, kingdoms had for for generations, which was you had a strong man generally, and then you had their offspring, and the idea was. I, if I'm the, the oldest and I'm trying to retain power so that no one takes over my position. And I think it, that mentality persists into leadership today for a different reason, because if you look at the leadership we have right now, we have access to nuclear weapons. We have access to artificial intelligence technology. We have access to all these things. And I think that the idea when it comes to national or global politics is, is someone capable of keeping these things in check? Am I strong enough to prevent these problems from exacerbating? Am I strong enough to lead? Because if I don't project confidence, then we're looking at something that could be disastrous. And I wonder what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, um, in, in interesting uh, line of, of thinking. And one thing I'll, I'll just kind of add to what you said is, is one of the reasons I believe we have so much competition inside organizations today is because we don't have enough contact with our competition. So humans are inherently competitive. And when we develop these groups called organizations, called a corporation, and we day in, day out, the people that we engage with most often are actually just the ones on our team. Mm -hmm. And only a small portion of the force that's arrayed within the organization have any actual compact uh, contact pardon me with the competition i think we're we're left to believe our competition is internal those are the people that we're fighting over resources with those are the people who are going to get the next promotion those are the right it just keeps going on and on and on and I, i think organizations that do a good job of continuing to drive home the nature of their ecosystem who are we trying to va- deliver value to? And who is our natural competition out there in the marketplace? The organizations that do those things really well do a better time with the middle element, which is my collaborators. So you got competitors, collaborators, and customers. And if you can really nail those others, you've only got one group left. These are people I'm supposed to be collaborating with. Mm-hmm. And we just we lose contact with that element of the competition. We don't do that on the soccer field. Right. We see the other team constantly. They're driving clearly towards our goal. We're constantly trying to pull the ball away from from that goal and put it in the other goal. The game is so much simpler. The competition is so much better understood. Yeah. So you're scaring me here a bit, Ed, because, you know, working with a lot of companies, especially the Fortune 500 companies, there's a lot of silo mentality, right? We put so much pressure on getting things done quickly on time that people get their laser focus on their tasks and they, they miss what's going on around them. I mean, before you're telling about leadership, this, this kind of silo drive is increasing this whole feeling about internal competition. I mean, that's, that's actually a scary thought, meaning that no matter what we might be trying to do in terms of giving them classes or training or things, we don't fix some of these, I guess I'll call them culture issues, environment yes. or infrastructure issues. It's hard to come over that hump, huh? Yeah, let me let me just take it to a, a really interesting analogy. I noticed the other day, uh, my in-laws were visiting and we were watching the uh, Jane Goodall special, right? And she's observing this family of apes over time. And uh, what happens is 
uh, a matriarch in the family uh, dies. And the, there is a very subtle movement of all of the family members under that matriarch just a couple trees away now. There's like a separation between them and the rest of uh, the family. And it only takes uh, a, like a month or so of that activity for now when there's a kill that the apes aren't sharing across the family anymore. And mm -hmm. as soon as that happens, as soon as that happens, the larger group kills every last member of the smaller group because they became the competition. They were now competition for resources. And so when we build organizations that um, create this competition mindset for resources internally, we, we, we cannibalize any hopes at synergy and spend all of our time, uh, you know, that Game of Thrones that you guys were, were describing earlier. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a perfect example of it. So, okay, then let's change it to a positive uh, discussion then. Final question for you. If, if uh, you know, thinking about the story that you want to share with the world, let's imagine that it's, I don't know, five, 10 years from now, and people begin to follow the principles, the fundamentals of your book. Can you paint us a picture of what that world looks like, a world more of, of cooperation as opposed to competition? Sure. Well, first and foremost, my hope would be that in that world, we have a significant full-time focus on behalf of leaders to create communities of effort. They are naturally through setting up uh, leadership SOPs, and again, you know, not to, to overlay my jargon, but those are your uh, standard operating procedures for structuring, operating, and perfecting your communities of effort. So they're through utilizing those over and over again and making micro and macro adjustments to their own behaviors and their teams experiencing those behaviors. We have a lot more autonomous teams whose mm -hmm. leaders are focusing on seeing around corners, unblocking barriers and, and obstacles for the team, getting their members of the team out and into other parts of the organization to benefit the lessons learned. We've got leaders who are thinking more tangibly about what leadership is. And so they're more able to hand it to somebody else and say, this is what leadership is to me. This is my playbook. It will not work perfectly for you in your context, but it'll be a place to start. And so you'll use this as your platform for leading. And every day you're going to develop more feel, more competence, and more confidence at what you're doing which is not just going to affect you, but it's going to affect the hundreds, if not thousands of lives you touch in your career. Yeah, well, this, this has been fantastic, Ed. So as people are learning to build their own playbooks, how can they learn more about your work, leadership SOPs, follow what's going on? What's the best way to get all of you? Well, best way to get a hold of me uh, is uh, go on to the website, leadershipsops.com. You'll find all kinds of, uh, free information, as well as you can click links to order my book, which is on Amazon. Again, title of that is From Expert to Executive, Mastering the SOPs of Leading. And of course, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, just like anyone else, and follow my journey there and help me do something that I could not do alone. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. What a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, 
please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.